All right, well, we are in the second week of a new series called Kingdom Come, and Derek opened, us, uh, opened the series up with it uh, last week um, and sort of introduced the idea uh, behind the series, which is understanding our present, right, our, what, what's going on right now in light of God's future, meaning that if we know where this thing is headed, that it informs and, and helps us understand our role in today, right? Uh, and so... That, that's kind of the big idea. So we're going to look at some of the end time stuff. But it, so if we understand where God's taken this whole deal and how this all kind of ends, uh, if you will, and meaning this age or this world, uh, then it'll you know help us understand what's going on right now. But if we're honest, the end of our book, right, the end of the, the books that we love here in the Bible is anything but easy to understand, right? Anybody else tried to read the book of Revelation and got into that thing and thought, what in the world, Right? It, it can be like there's all sorts of imagery, there's all sorts of stuff. So what happens a lot of times is we either just kind of push away from it altogether and go, man, I don't know, right? I don't understand. Uh, I believe that Jesus wins. And other than that, I don't know, right? And so we just kind of push away from the table, which, which can lead to sort of apathy or laziness about the kingdom work that, that we're called to here today. Or the other side of that is we can become kind of hyper-obsessed with the details in Revelation, right? We can kind of uh, get really caught up on the, the, the order of events and, you know, watch every new story through that lens and trying to interpret the end times. And we really start weirding out our friends, right? And all of a sudden people don't come over to our house anymore, right? Because they just don't know how to make sense of what you're saying. And you anyway, so it, it, that can kind of lead to the, the, the different ways. So while it is indeed confusing and there's really not consensus or clarity about the details and the order of those details, Really, in, in any theological ring, and there's just, there's just not. And, and so while that is true, there are some things that we can know. There are some things that we do know uh, definitively about what God is going to do at the end. Um, and they matter. Like, it matters immensely what God is going to do with this world, right? It matters uh, whether this is a throwaway world that he's just trying to get us all off of, and then one day you know, he'll kind of be done with that and we'll be in heaven, and whether that's separate, or whether he's making this thing new. And, and all of that matters. And to be honest, uh, a lot of Bible Belt and Christian culture today has been influenced by some novels and some movies that were written uh, that you know, were written as such, but were kind of presented as, as biblical, and we've kind of got some, some messed up ideas perhaps about what it is that God is doing. And so we're going to try to take a look at, at um, what... <clears throat> You know, we're trying to bring as much clarity as we can to this. Uh, we're not going to get into the order of details. We're not. That's where a lot of people get hung up in the weeds of the the order. Is, is, is there going to, uh, you know, is there a rapture and when does it happen and is there a millennium and and does that before or after the tribulation? Has Jesus already come or when does he come after that? And then what? You know, all of that can get really confusing. So we won't get into the weeds a ton. The last week we'll answer some of those fun questions. Last week in the series, but most of all, we're going to look at really the big picture idea of what God is doing. And what he uh, is going to do at the end, and that is to restore heaven and earth as one. Like that heaven will not be some disjointed place out there, right? Where we have some heavenly bodies and, and you know, wings and diapers and just kind of disconnected. Like it will be very much earthly. And pre- like he's going to restore back to the Garden of Eden, back to Eden plus so much more. Right, where where new heaven and new earth are going to come, like heaven's going to come and be here in the dwelling place of God will be with man forever. And so, yes, He's going to burn uh, this world away, and and it'll be in a new form, but it will not be a whole new planet. 
right? And so we'll talk about that in increasing amounts as we get into it and then talk about the application of those things. But really, in order to understand the future or kind of the end times, if you will, uh, we have to understand that, that really that whole deal, Revelation and the end times that people get so confused about, in order to really kind of make some sense out of that or have some peace with it, um, we have to understand that that's not a separate event, right? That it's not this one-off thing that God just finally does once he's done with this earth. He's going to go, okay, and this is how he's going to get rid of it. That what's happening at the end, what's being um, outlined in, in, in John's vision in Revelation, what uh, what we get confused about so often is not this separate event. Rather, it's a culmination of all that God has been doing and is doing today. And that makes a huge difference. To understand that it is a culmination of all that God has been doing from the beginning and what he's doing today, it, it, like that's what's going to be finalized and culminated in that moment, which we'll look at. But, as Derek talked about last week, the Bible sort of starts, not sort of, the Bible starts and ends, it begins and ends with God, with his people, dwelling in harmony and ruling on the earth together. It begins that way in Eden. That's how it was supposed to be, and things were really, really good. And it's going to end that way as we look at Revelation 21, particularly in the dwelling place of God is with man. Like Those are the bookends of the Bible, quite literally, and also just like that's, that's the story. And everything that's happened in between is not disconnected from that, but is instead tied to that. And so uh, last week, uh, Derek talked about uh, Exodus 19 and how God was, was making for himself a people and then bringing them to himself and then giving them the law of the way in which they should live. And he talked about the order of that even matters immensely. But, but that, that, is, <clears throat> that the work of God is him making for himself a people to be known as God's people, to be blessed, to be made whole as God's people, not because they're morally uh, superior than the rest of the world, not because they've figured it out and have learned how to be the good ones. No, instead, because God has shown them mercy, right? And he has made them whole. They become a kingdom of priests, which means the rest of the world is going to see who God is through watching them live. So in today's passage, we're going we're gonna to dig a little bit deeper and see how uh, Jesus has, has arrived now, right? Jesus shows up, and the reason we did uh, the, the Matthew text instead of the Luke text of, of sort of this famous passage uh, or the sermon that is, is related, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, is because I wanted you to see, if you look in, in Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> I wanted you to see that, that Jesus uh, is fulfilling all that is, like, we skipped a whole lot of Bible, right, between Exodus and Matthew. I don't know if you realize that. There's a whole lot in between there. Uh, but I, I wanted you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has been happening and been longing ever since that day, really ever since Genesis 3 when things went wrong and God pronounced that this thing is now broken, but it won't stay that way. Back in Genesis 3, even, God says that there will come a day. There will come a day when the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the enemy. Right? And all things will be put right once more. And, and all that God is doing throughout the Old Testament is pointing to and, and leaning in and, and longing for the arrival of this great king. And if that's confusing to you, actually, I meant to bring one up here, but I didn't. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a Bible for families and for kids, uh, it's one of my favorite tools. Uh, and honestly, whether you're an adult or a kid, I would encourage you to read through it because it does one of the best jobs. It's not inerrant. It's not inspired. We don't hold it authoritatively as we do Scripture. But it is a really good tool to help you see how all of the Old Testament and all that, uh, all that is in there is pointing toward and longing for Jesus. It does just a really, really good job. We have a few out there 
on the desk uh, to your left whenever you, you exit today, uh, or you can order them uh, online yourself, but we would love to give you one because it's a, just a great tool. So again, even if you're an adult, I would encourage, if you have trouble understanding the, the Old Testament relation to the New, I would, I would challenge you to, to read that. It's a really, really helpful to, tool to that end. But all of that has been longing for, and we see uh, in the first verse that, that Russ read there, in, in Matthew chapter four seventeen, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For, so from that time, we, we hear that uh, some stuff has happened, and right before that, it says, uh, so that all that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, or so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then it talks about uh, what, what Jesus was fulfilling by literally going to the place where Isaiah said he would go hundreds of years before. And we're not going to get into all that, but what you need to know is that for uh, generations now, for thousands of years, God's people have been going through a cycle of realizing that they cannot fulfill what God has laid before them, and they need a Savior, they need a Messiah, and one day he will come. And prophets have said, he will come. And when he comes, he will do this. And when he comes, he will do that. And he'll fulfill this. And so you see that Jesus here is the culmination of all of that. And so this is a turning point. This is an incredible moment whenever that's happening. Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies. And there's many more to come. But he says from this moment on in verse 17, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's an interesting um, thing that we're going we're gonna to look at when Jesus says it's, it's here, right? The kingdom of heaven is, is present. It's at hand. You need to repent because it's here. And so there begins to be this realization that it's not just this one day he, he's going to come and, you know, the kingdom doesn't just arrive when Jesus comes back and sets all things to rights. Like there's a present reality that theologians would call this the already but not yet, that Jesus has indeed established his kingdom, that there is a presence about his kingdom, that there is not yet consummation of his kingdom. And so there's a presence, meaning the kingdom of heaven is here. It is a reality. There is a people that are under his reign, under his rule, and in a realm of the kingdom of heaven, but it is not yet consummated. That'll come later whenever he arrives again in the form that we see in Revelation 19 and that the Bible points ahead toward. And so we're in this day and age in between the the first coming and the second coming of Christ, the age of the church. And that doesn't mean that when we pray, so here's the deal. This this series kind of birthed out of Jesus says, he teaches his people to pray. He says that we should pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should pray for that. We should, Jesus t- tells us, and one of the first things he teaches us to pray, that we should pray that way. Does that mean that we are just praying that the second, of coming, second coming of Christ would come soon? Like, and we're just waiting until then? And it's not, it's not less than that. It certainly is like we should be praying. We should be longing for the day when Jesus arrives again. So we should be praying that. But I, I think there's a, there's a present reality in which the, the, the kingdom is coming in increasing fashion and will one day culminate in his second coming. And that's really the big idea of this series. And so we won't get into all that today, but that's, that's the heart behind this series. And so when he shows up here and starts to preach to people, repent, for the kingdom is at, <clears throat> at hand, this is a big, big deal. And what we're going to see here as we, as we move on to chapter 5 is that uh, this, is, this is a declaration of his authority, his arrival, and an administration coming in and bringing his like his new way of life. And so if you, if you look with me in, verse, or in chapter 5 of Matthew um, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, 
he went up on the mountain and he sat there, sat down and, and uh, his disciples came to him. So the crowds come. Why are the crowds there? Well, if you, you read the, the part before that, they actually come because Jesus has went throughout, verse 20, back in 23 of, of chapter 4, he's gone throughout all, the whole area. He's teaching with, a, <clears throat> with authority. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what else? He's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. This is, this is all connected. This is, a, this is a big deal. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so there, there begins to be this movement of people following Jesus. Why? Because he's showing up and he's not only preaching with authority, but he's healing he is declaring the physical world to submit to him and to change according to his will. And, and it has, it's setting, he's setting people free. He's, he's bringing the kingdom in a physical way, an authoritative way. And so I want you to see that this is not disconnected from what Derek walked us through last week. In fact, it's very beautifully connected. One of my hopes for you in this series is that you'll see the, the thread of the kingdom, the thread of, of God's movement all throughout the scripture, and it makes it really beautiful and really enriching to read whenever you see this grand theme of what God is doing in the world. And so as you see, last week, God uh, brings his people out of Egypt, out of the slavery, the, the suffering that they were in. He heard their cry, and he brings them out of slavery <clears throat> rescues them, right? The Red Sea moment, all of that has happened, and then he brings them into the wilderness. Why? Well, to meet them there, right? To bring, to, to meet them there, to give him his word, to, to give them their, his word, and he says, hey, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And this all comes before he gives the law. And so he brings them into the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain, meets with God, and then goes back down and declares what God has said to his people. I want you to see, it actually outlines it a little bit better in Luke 6, which is a similar story um, from a different gospel writer's perspective. But in Luke, we see that Jesus, as he begins his ministry, goes up on this mountain to pray. In isolation, he goes up to meet with the Lord. He comes back down, and that's when he appoints his 12 disciples, which is interesting. He doesn't have a huge following at that point, but he Excuse me, he still appoints 12. Well, there's, there's a thread there. There's significance there. Why? Because the nation of Israel had what? 12 tribes, right? So back to, to Exodus. Moses goes up on the mountain. The Lord gives him a word. He comes back down and declares it. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He meets with the Lord. The Lord says, or God says, these are your 12 people. Go down and appoint them. And so this is a continuation of God bringing forth his people. This is not a separate thing. This is a culmination of what we see in Exodus where God is making for himself a people. This is like Jesus is bringing that in to a new and further realization when he says the kingdom is here. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. He's forming for himself a people. And so there's this parallel. There's this connection, right? And so Jesus comes down, appoints his 12, and then he delivers the word. And so then he starts to say, so after God rescues his people in Exodus, he says, hey, I've done this for you, and now you're going to be my people. And hey, here's how you're going to live and how you're going to continue to be my people. If you'll do these things, it's going to go really well, and the whole world will take notice because of how much I'm going to bless you and how your life is going to go. Jesus is here, goes up on the mountain, meets with God, comes down, picks his people, begins to form a people, and then he is going to give the Sermon on the Mount, which is his way of declaring, okay, this is how, this is how life is going to work. 
This is how life, this is a new rule, a new administration. This is how life is going to work. So God does that in Exodus. He establishes, he is authoritative. He has rescued them by his own strong arm. And now as a result of that, he gets to tell them, hey, this is how life's going to go as you're now my people. And then he gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law so that they can earn their salvation, right? Never in the scripture is the law given as a means to our own righteousness. He gives them the law after he saved them as a way to live lives that will lead to a blessing, right? And so Jesus is going to do the same thing. And so uh, the kingdom is at hand. Now, we miss this sometimes. We, we don't have a great concept of, of kings, you know, a kingdom because we don't have kings, right? And that's okay, but it, it just it helps to kind of think through what Jesus is doing here because the Beatitudes are going to lay out for us the way of life as Jesus' people, but in order to kind of understand what's going on here, you have to uh, think a little bit about what he's saying when, whenever the king has arrived, the kingdom is at hand, and we as his people have a different set of rules to live by now. And so, uh, you know, this is, a, this is like a new administration taking over, maybe a new boss at your, your job, and they're going to value different things, they're going to do things differently, and they're going to have a different way of, of approaching principles and ways to live, right? And so maybe, uh, maybe it's, it's helpful to kind of think about, I heard one pastor compare it to... Um, a college football team, right? So when, that, when they fire an old coach, bring in a new coach, that, that dude, that's not a democracy, right? That's not players saying, well, I really want to do it this way. That guy has his rules. He has his principles. He has ways of life that you're going to be a part of, right? This is how the new administration is going to run this program. You're going to do this. You're not going to do that. And we're going to do this. And this is what we value as a team. This is how we're going to operate. And each coach has that, whether they're good or bad. But what we see is if it's a bad coach, right, if it's a bad leader, the things that they're going to implement is not going to yield much fruit. In fact, it might add to the chaos and be bad, right? But when it's a good coach, a good leader, when it's a good set of, like when it's a good leader, he'll have a good set of rules that are going to lead to what? Flourishing, right? We're going to see each player start living up to their potential. We're going to start seeing wins. We're going to start seeing a culture built that is good. And in the same way, Jesus has showed up and he is established his authority by healing, like setting people free from being paralyzed, from having demons. He has established his authority. Back in Exodus, God says, all the earth is mine. So I'm the boss. Here's how this is going to go. Jesus establishes authority, and this is what he's going to lay forward as now. This is how my people will live. So that brings us to the the famous Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to spend the most time on this one. The rest of we're going to blow through a bit, but this one is pivotal. To understand what he's saying here is really to make sense of the rest of them and really make sense of the rest of the New Testament in many ways. And what he's saying here is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is going to contrast two different kingdoms here. What he's talking about is, is so many people, like you think about what the world values. What does our world value? It values success, money, right? Power, sex, right? Being, um, having influence, people liking you. Like that's what the world tells you you need to get in order to experience life. And Jesus is going to begin to say, no, no, no. That's what's got everybody into this mess. The world is broken. And I'm here to, to redeem it, to save it. And as my people that have been redeemed and saved, this is going to be the posture in which you live. And he says, blessed. And, and, and the word blessed is, is more than just this temporal experience of happiness, right? This is, this is a state of being that we experience when we respond to Jesus, that, that we have this, 
this inner peace where, where things no longer control us. We're no longer tossed to and fro by the circumstances in our life, but instead we're anchored in Jesus because now like things are different, right? Like in no other world would, would we're going to see later weeping and mourning, uh, would, would that go together with being happy or being blessed, right? But with Jesus, things are going to change so dramatically because he's going to turn the world's values on its head. And so he says, blessed are, right? Uh, that means whole, like having this state of peace and knowing the bigger picture. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? To be poor in spirit means to understand that you ain't got anything to offer God. It means to understand that you are spiritually bankrupt. Right? Maybe it's helpful to look at it this way. It says, really, if you ain't poor in spirit, you're not a Christian, right? So it's really fundamental to understanding who we are before the Lord and to experience it, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so what it means is you can't be middle class in spirit. Right? And what does that mean? We think about what, what does a middle class person say? A middle class person says, listen, I work really, really hard, right? And I pay my taxes, and so I deserve my rights. I don't want your charity, right? Middle class person says, I don't want your charity. I don't need your charity. I work really hard. I pay my taxes. I want my rights, right? Middle class person, a middle class and spirit person says, listen, I've lived a pretty good life. I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but I've lived a pretty good life. So therefore, I think God owes me a pretty good life. I think God, I think I'm entitled to the Lord answering my prayers, right? Like, I'm a pretty good person. And that's what, like, and we can't come to the Lord that way. Jesus says, no, 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 you have to be poor in spirit. And this is a paradigm shift. Jesus himself is the Messiah, the long-awaited one that all of Israel has been looking forward to. And they think that he's going to come in power, and he's going to take a throne, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to establish the kingdom of Israel back in an earthly, material way. But instead, what does he do? He comes in humility, right? He's born in a manger. And instead of taking a throne, he's going to take the cross, which we'll look at next week. But we have to begin our relationship with God in the place where Jesus purchased our relationship for God, and that is in a place of humility. So we have to understand that we don't have anything to offer. We're not entitled to anything. We don't come saying, hey, I kind of deserve this, Lord. You're going to answer my prayers. I get to be, I know I'm not perfect, but like, hey, here's what I'm owed. No, no, no. We, we understand the gospel. We enter in the kingdom of heaven. We start to get things. Things fall into place. We experience salvation when we understand we have nothing. Nothing to offer the Lord. The poor in spirit understand that we are only knocking on, on the door of our Lord. Like, we're only knocking in with pure hopes of charity. Right? We're not saying, hey, I got this to offer, or hey, I could give you this. No, no, no. We understand that we have nothing that is worth speaking of in the presence of the Lord. And this comes from encountering the Holy God, Right? We, we reference this a lot, but one of the most incredible stories is in Isaiah 6, whenever he's brought into the throne room of the Lord. And this is a prophet, right? This is a leader of the church. This is a dude that is, has, has done pretty well as far as the moral you know, standards go. He's probably better than all of us as far as how, how he's lived his life. And when he stands before the holy God of the universe, he doesn't start bargaining and saying, well, hey, I know I kind of messed up here, but overall I think I've done pretty well, and so you know, maybe I could just slide on into your presence. No, he hits his face, right? He says, woe is me. 
I, I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a people who are unclean, and I have no hope of surviving this deal. Like, I'm going to be consumed. And that's where we have to start as well. Like, encountering the holiness of God, understanding that Jesus is the authority over all heaven and earth, that he is holy himself, that he has no sin in his own body. Like, and when we stand before him, we have nothing to offer in terms of a transaction that will get us anything with the Lord. And it's actually when we admit that that we can experience the life that Jesus came to give us. This, the whole thing is, is, is sort of this paradox. And Jesus will say it over and over again in all sorts of ways. He'll unpack this for us. Right In different parables, he's always drawing this out. The, the parable of the kingdom, like the, the, the man who finds a pearl, the parable of the man who finds a great treasure, all of it is saying, listen, the, the kingdom of heaven is so rich that you have to realize that nothing else that you have is, is worthy to bring to God. Instead, you'll get rid of it all just to have him. And, and, and when Jesus says, you, if you want to find your life, you want to experience life, like you're, you want that thing that, that will fulfill you, that thing that will bring you wholeness that you think is this or that, and you've come to church hoping that God can kind of push you over the edge with some, some moral instruction or some just feel-good stuff. He says, no, no, it's not about that. He says, in fact, you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to lay it all down. When you do that, when you realize you have to lay everything down in your hands because it's all rubbish, it's all worth nothing, but in, in return, whenever you lay that all down, you get to lay hold of the only thing that matters, and that is God himself. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the treasure. So it starts there, and when we understand that, ours is the kingdom of heaven. That, that's what enters us. Like we, we have to enter in through our salvation into the gospel good news through that door, understanding that we have nothing to offer. And Jesus is going to, this, this is all in contrast to the religious people of the day who have turned God's law that he gave back in Exodus into this means of, okay, if I do these things, then I have these, this amount of righteousness and it separates me from the rest of the world, right? Separates me from those who just can't, right? Because when you're middle class in spirit, or up, like you look at those who are struggling and you say, why can't you just, why can't you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? I did. I accomplished this. And that's what, that's what the religious people that day, they, they have, have kept the law. They're, they're worried about, they, they haven't, you know, they haven't defrauded anybody. They haven't murdered anybody. They haven't committed adultery. And they're really proud of that. And they look at the rest of the world who's struggling and they kind of look down on them. Jesus says, no, no. When you encounter God, you're going to understand you got nothing. And when you understand you got nothing, it's going to transform everything. And that's what makes sense of the rest of this passage. I'm going to blow through these quickly. But he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's saying, Those who, who, who mourn, who weep over their own sin, over the effects of sin in the world, that they will one day be comforted. They, that they will have this. this uh, paradox of existing feelings, like where they, they will weep and mourn over the, the effects of sin in their own life and in the life of the world, like in, in the, the bigger scheme of the world, but they won't be brought to despair because they have a greater hope that, it's, that exceeds all of that. Jesus said they, they will be comforted one day. Like, and he's going to point to the, the greater, the, the thing that, that he's accomplishing, that one day we will experience this, this fullness of his redemption, and we experience it in part right now. It's already here. We have this peace in Jesus knowing that he wins, but one day we'll experience it in full when he comes back and the culmination or the, the consummation of his kingdom comes. 
Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What, the meek doesn't mean that we all just kind of, you know, uh, really frail and never assert ourselves. It means that it's the people who are not, we're not asserting our own will or to, to, for selfish gain, right? That we are deferring to others. We're, we're, we're not just trying to get ours at the cost of other people. We're not just using people to advance in the world. Instead, we understand that there's a greater purpose and we have a meekness about it, about ourselves, rather, that leads to us valuing God's agenda over ours. And it goes on to say, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they shall be satisfied. Meaning that those who realize the only thing worth longing for, right, is, is righteousness. And, and we will get that, like we get that in Jesus. It's gifted to us through Jesus. And that only comes from this paradigm shift that happens when we encounter God in the way that we've described. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We become a people who, uh, instead of responding to others with disdain, or why can't you just get it figured out? Instead, we become a people of mercy. Why? Because we ourselves, on that day when we look ahead, when we stand before the Lord, like our only hope is mercy, right? Our only hope is that we don't get what we deserve. We have that hope because of Jesus, what he's accomplished for us. But if we're standing on our own, then we understand, man, we, we have nothing to offer. So blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Motives are transformed, right? We're not just, we're not just a people who are doing good for our own sake, right? We, are, we actually are seeking the goodness of other people and of the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We become a people who move into conflict to resolve it, and not just for selfish gain, but we, we actually care about bringing the peace of the Lord, bringing experience, people experiencing true joy, and not just winning our way and winning our argument, but instead we lean in, we want harmony to exist. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Listen, when you're wrongly treated because of your faith in Jesus, and Jesus said that that'll happen. Like, he doesn't say if, or, like, he says, no, like, in this world, you're going to have trouble. They hated me first. If you're following me, they're going to hate you too. So following Jesus, living this out, is not going to lead to you. The next one's going to say the same thing. It's not going to lead to you being praised by the popular culture. Right? Instead, you may be persecuted, and you may be isolated, which is what the next one's going to say. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward, verse 12, is great in heaven. And for so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That means like you're going to have this upside down life and instead of pursuing the praise of man and pursuing the values of this world, everything's been flipped upside down for you when you realize all that matters is Jesus. And now this stuff right? It's not that we don't still, like Christians, it doesn't mean that we might not get rich. It doesn't mean that we might not have power and influence, but it means that we're not seeking those things as primary to our hope. It means that when we get them, we're kind of skeptical of them and we use them for God's glory, but we're not striving. At the same time, it doesn't mean that we're trying to become poor and persecuted people. It doesn't mean that we're seeking those things out. It means that when those things come, we have a a posture of gratitude, knowing that God has a greater purpose in them. Does that make sense? He's not saying that we become these Christian masochists that are just seeking to, you know, be isolated, be persecuted, and be poor. He's saying it won't matter if those things come because you have a bigger hope. You have a hope that transcends all of those things. And so when they come, you won't lose hope. In fact, you'll find a way to rejoice in them, knowing that one day 
right? All will be made right, and that God is using that to a greater purpose. And then on the flip side of that, when we do experience prosperity and flourishing and power and influence and things that are, like, we won't, like, turn them away, but instead we'll be a little skeptical of them. We're saying, okay, I don't want to find my hope in that thing. I want to find my hope in that salary or in that, that position or in people's approval. Instead, I want to use it for the glory of God and see what God wants to do in and through me. Our, our whole paradigm is shifted, and that is what it looks like to live under the kingdom of heaven. We're in a different realm. We have a different king. He has a new administration. He has a new way of living. And when we become those sorts of people, it has an effect on the world. Okay, so here's where we're going to flip. As we close, we're going to look at, okay, the bigger picture of what he's doing. Listen, the world is broken, right? I don't think we have to unpack that. You can just watch the news to understand the world is broken. And if we're honest, so are we, right? Like we talked about that in our last series. Like we get that the world is broken. And one day he's going to come and make it all right again. He's going to do away with all sin, all evil, and it'll all be put to rights once and for all. But in the meantime, in the meantime, which is us today, that's the meantime. What is he doing? Well, some would ask, well, why does he wait then? Why does he allow this evil to keep happening? Why doesn't he come and do that right now? Well, the Bible says he's waiting. His patience, his lack of return is for our good, right? It's out of his kindness so that we may repent. You think about it. Had he come back years ago, you might not have had the chance to repent, hear the gospel, and experience life in him, right? And the same is true. He is delaying so that the kingdom can be declared to more and more and more and more people can experience his pardon. He is waiting so that the kingdom can be advanced and more people can experience life in Jesus. And so in the meantime, though, he's going to preserve this broken world. And this is where it gets really rich and beautiful. You think about last week when Derek talked about he, uh, God said he's going to make them a kingdom of priests, right? And that doesn't mean that they're all going to fulfill this role of priest like Aaron and his family did. It means that what a priest is is somebody who goes between the people and God, right? Somebody that, is the intercede, that intercedes on, on behalf of the people, talks to God. And so what he's saying is that the whole nation, together as a people, are going to serve as that for the world. That as the world observes this people that God is making, they're going to see God through the way that these people are living. And so we see that this is now carried out and, and made even fuller in Jesus' work here. Why? Because he talks about us being the salt and the light, right? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. If a salt has lost its taste, how should it be uh, salt or its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. What he's saying is the, the religious people have kind of blown this deal. They're no longer living out what God has, has their, their ultimate, like the reason he gave them the law was not for them to puff themselves up and separate themselves from everybody in this deal. No, no, they gave them the law so that they would become this kingdom of priests so that people see the goodness of God. They've blown it. But Jesus is saying, hey, you people, you, that you're living under my rule and under my realm, you're going to become the salt of the earth. Well, what is salt used for, especially back in this day? It's primarily a preservative, right? Salt's a, pre- a preservative. I mean, you're not going to put it in water, right, because water doesn't go bad. But you're going to put it in meat, right, because they don't have refrigeration back in those days. And so meat, if you don't do something to it, it's going to, it's going to rot, it's going to fall apart, right? Well, the wor- here's the deal. The world, it's falling apart, Right? It's, it's in danger of falling apart. And so what, what, what they would do for the meat to keep it from falling apart is they're going to press salt down into it, right? They're going to press salt into it so that it will be preserved, so that it won't rot and it can last and be enjoyed. And the same is true of this broken and fallen world, this messed up world. He's saying, hey, you, the people of God, when you embody this type of life, when you start to live out the, the, the kingdom of Jesus, you're going to become like salt for a broken world, and you're going to preserve this thing until one day 
it can come back and be fully restored and consummated. Does that make some sense? What that means is when we, as a people of God, have encountered God and we understand that we're poor in spirit, we got nothing to offer, that changes our perspective. And now, instead of doing what the world says, when the world says, you know, that we should isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from things that are hard and people that are hard and situations that are hard, we should try to avoid that altogether. Jesus says, no, no, no. In fact, he models it for us. And he says, no, no, no. You're going to be a people who move toward things that are broken. You're going to be a people who move toward the brokenness of the world, and you're going to press in. So when you see someone that is broken and falling apart, maybe that's emotionally, you're going to move toward them as my people. When you see a community, a neighborhood, a country, a county, whatever, fill in the blank, when you see that it's falling apart, that it's broken, that it's suffering, that it's in danger of, of completely fought, like we move into that space as Christians. Right? We're the only people in the world, in the history of the world, that move into broken and hard things. Everything else, every other value says we should insulate ourselves and move away, right? But Jesus calls us to move into those. Why? Because that's his plan. To bring redemption to the world is for his people to be a preservatory in the meantime, right? That we, we move into hard places, that we, it, it, we're not, it's not, we're going like, to see it made perfect until Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, we should do all we can to kind of push back the darkness, to hold off the rot, to hold off the falling apart. We become a people who mourn for people and mourn for the effects of sin. We lean in and we're trying to make peace. We become a people who lean into hard places and when kids don't have homes, we open ours. We become a people who move in when people are struggling with with drug addiction. We say, hey, come be a part of my family. Like I want to walk with you. I want to see redemption happen. We move into hard things instead of away from them. So we, as the people of God, when the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, like that, that looks like God's people being attracted to hard Things. But then the second part of that is we are attractive to the world, right? We're going to become a light. Verse 14, you are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, your light sh- let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, again, he's, a, he's coming at the religious people here saying, why on earth would I light this lamp and then put a bowl over it so nobody can see it? make any sense, right? Jesus is saying, I'm doing this work in you? Yes, so that you can experience wholeness. Church, yes, God loves you, and he came to save you and to make you whole so that you could find life and life abundant in him, but it doesn't just end there. It's so that the rest of the world can see God's goodness through you. Amen? Like, so he doesn't just, the religious people go, well, well it's good. I, I know the right way to live now, and I'm just going to go over here and isolate myself, and any of you rescue poppers figure it out. You're welcome to join us. But in the meantime, right? No, no, he says, why would I do that? Why would I light a lamp and then put a ball over it? He says, no, no, I'm going to light a lamp, but I'm going to put it on the biggest hill that I can find so that the most amount of people can see my goodness. Well, church, this is where we're at. Like, this is what Jesus has called us to in this moment. One day he's going to come back and put it all to rights. One day he's going to come back and we'll no longer need preservative, right? Because all the sin and the things that cause rot will be gone forever. And we long for that day. And we should pray, Maranatha, like, Lord, come quick. But in the meantime, in the meantime, because we are a people who are poor in spirit, because we're a people who are meek, because we're a people who have been transformed by the gospel, We are a people 
who lean into the hard things of the world. We are a people who are a witness to the world by the way that we run toward hard things instead of away from. Listen, the world's going to take note of that. And one day, the work we've done, because listen, not every addict that you love on, not every kid that you, that you, you know, mentor or foster is going to turn out great. But one day, one day, he's going to come back. And all that we've labored to do will be breathed on by his powerful breath and it will all be finished. And we'll get to rejoice and celebrate him with forever. But here's the last point. Here's, here's what you have to know is that this, the Beatitudes are not put before us just like the Ten Commandments back in Exodus are not put before God's people so that they can earn, their fa- earn God's favor and figure it out. No, no, no. They're given as, as, a way, as a result of what God has done in a life. This is how you're going to live. And so the same is true for us. Jesus, he's not just calling for himself a people to do the dirty work because he doesn't want to do it, right? No, quite the opposite. Jesus himself is the one that embodies the Beatitudes. Jesus himself is the only one that gives us the ability to live that out because he himself embodies it, right? Because Jesus is the one who was rich and he became poor for our sake. Right? Jesus is the one who mourns. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the world. He so loved the world that he came right, to, to give us life. Like Jesus embodies all of this. He doesn't assert his own will, but instead lays it down. Right? He is the one who is ultimately meek. He is the one who goes hungry so that you and I can be filled. He is the one that doesn't get shown mercy. Right On the cross, he is enduring the wrath of God. And, He receives the wrath so that we can receive mercy. He puts himself in our place. He becomes all of those things that the Beatitudes are laid out. He becomes them because that's the only way that we're going to have a hope of living them out. So he himself is the one who's persecuted. He himself is the one who is forsaken and isolated so that you and I could be welcomed and embraced. And he himself is the one who embodies the hope of the kingdom. when we encounter that, we realize, man, my life was not my own. I don't, I don't look at this and go, man, I got to really mourn more. I got to really hunger and thirst for righteousness more. I got to be more merciful. We go, no, man, my Jesus has showed me mercy. My Jesus has given his life for me. So, man, I, what choice do I have but to give my life for him? And we become a people. Not a perfect people, but a people who are humble. People who get it. That they, that, like, we become a bunch of beggars, right? Telling the rest of the world where we found bread instead of a bunch of people standing back going, can't y'all figure this out? It's a new and a better way that Jesus lays forward. And listen, our world desperately needs it, amen? Y'all watching the news? Talk about falling apart, right? Talk about not sure if it's gonna last. Like our world, our nation, it's like, it's bad. We could sit back and we could fuss about those things and we could hope for this or that, or we can, we can embody what Jesus has called us to embody and trust that he's going to use us to preserve this deal until he comes back and makes it all good. Amen? That's the season that we're in. That's what we're, we're waiting for. That's the role we're playing in the kingdom coming. And there's more to it, and we're going to walk through that in the, in the coming series. But for today, may we be a people that are poor in spirit, and, instead, and because of that, we embody the Beatitudes We embody that we become the salt and the light of the earth. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you for the grace that you've shown to us, the mercy that you've shown to us. Thank you for being forsaken so that we could be embraced and adopted. Thank you for enduring the wrath so that we could indeed embrace and receive mercy. Thank you, Lord. May that message be dominant this morning, and may you call people to respond as a result. Help us to be your people. Help us to have a posture of being poor in spirit. Help us to have a posture that reflects who you are and your kingdom here in Southern Illinois, Lord, and to the, the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.